2, 13 through 17. Be subject to the Lord. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors that sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Let's pray. Uh, dear God, we thank you for your word. Uh, I pray that it would be the authority over our lives, first and foremost, uh, that you would soften our hearts this morning, uh, give us a joyful heart to worship you and receiving of the word, uh, that we would bow before it as spirit-breathed and completely sufficient uh, for us in all things. I pray that you'd continue to give us wisdom throughout the week and that uh, this morning we would be eager to, to receive that wisdom as the one true truth. Amen. this section of first peter for a few weeks now um you'll see what he's doing this morning as we move into verse 13 um he's continuing the positive exhortation he began in verse 12 so uh you stay with verse 12 uh in the in the positive exhortation i, I mentioned to you there was a negative and a positive exhortation for last week right so you're looking through the text and the words to you as a believer uh, is number one abstain from the passions of the flesh and we've covered that uh, but, but he's urging this upon you as a believing individual. Uh, abstain, so there's the negative, right? Keep an eye on the ball and abstaining from the passion of the flesh. Don't get the passions, let them get away from you. Um, the, the disastrous effect is the naivety that maybe you take toward the passions of your own flesh. It, it, you're naive to thinking uh, just how bad are these passions, uh, or maybe it's causing a little friction in a relationship. Or maybe it's kind of dulling the edge in my life. No, 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 no. He's saying, I, I'm urging it to you, not because it, it, it um, is simply a bad way to go. I, I'm urging you as a believing individual, a person who possesses faith in Christ, I'm urging you abstain from them because what's at risk is uh, your soul. That, 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 that should, right, so the urgency and the tone and the language and the object of change which is my immaterial self of which as a believer i'm seeking to be enriched and to grow and to nourish and to mature that part is becoming uh, uh, uh destroyed by these passions that i'm not abstaining from and so that that's the negative right and then he moves on to the positive exhortation forward looking keep your conduct honorable um, keep it among the Gentiles honorable. Again, the language of the Gentiles, remember, is he speaks of exiles and sojourners and then Gentiles. He's speaking of you as the church, the people of God. Um, and, and so Gentile is simply just a reference to the unbelieving community that you live your life within. Again, he warns us against allowing, um, in terms of the Gentiles, he's warning us against allowing our natural desire for acceptance among others, to be universally understood and accepted. We all have that innately. And that, that's what he's warning about, our public conduct, because it'll get away from you. But what's the impulse to let my public conduct get away from me? Your impulse is to be uh, well-received by those that you surround yourself with. Again, 
He's asking you to be keen on these things. Notice them in your life. You have a natural tendency to be loved, to be appreciated, to be welcomed and not pushed away. That natural tendency among your peers can lead you to lead a dishonorable life if you call yourself a Christian. This is a concern for Peter. Again, allowing your natural desire for acceptance to be the reason behind your moral corruptions. Rather, he exhorts us, we must remain privately and publicly virtuous and honorable in the face of social pressure. I often think of this in terms of concrete and real measurable relationships. Um, Sometimes I think with uh, folks any longer, that's somewhat, yeah, it's relevant, but somewhat misplaced. Maybe the greatest pressure, so I'll just lay this to you, and then you can lay it to your conscience and, and figure out if I'm zeroing in well or I'm missing the mark with you as an individual. But let me lay it out there for you to consider um, less the concrete measurable relations you have, which probably, and I may be wrong on this, but I think that those measurable relationships are shrinking and the ambiguity of relations that pretend to be relations, which is your online social life, is increasing. So so maybe the focus where you think, again, where's the pressure greatest for me to feel the need to be performative in my life? Where is that pressure the greatest? Is it really in the person that you live with in your home? Probably not. Is it with even the folks that you surround yourself at work? Maybe, maybe not. Where is it online? Yeah, probably so. So um, where those performative lives are lived, that's where the edges get cut. Um, In order to be a better performer, I may make adjustments in my morality because I'm looking for that return and relational affirmation. So, So again, consider it in your own life. But let me lay to you once again what he's urging you as we move forward. Because he's going to move this sense of urging your public behavior into an organized institutional manner, which was just read for you. It's going to talk about the government. But let me say this again. He's warning you against allowing your natural desire for acceptance to be the reason behind your moral corruption. Rather, you must, as a believing Christian, remain privately and publicly virtuous, honorable. Where? in the face of social pressure. The hurtful but real irony, and I trust you've experienced this um, as much as um, uh, you've witnessed it in the media or once again in social online life or in just kind of uh, public rhetoric. The hurtful but real irony is that when you stand fast for biblical conformity and norms in your life, Peter warns each of us, you will be labeled at some point an evildoer. This is important. Notice the text very carefully in in verse 12 when he said when, Um, not if. So, So naturally, as you live your biblical convictions in your life in the realms of morality, you will inevitably come into friction with depravity. You'll wrestle against your own principle of flesh, You'll be tempted beyond your flesh by the devil, and you'll experience friction in the place of the world. Um, So uh, once again, he's warning us against the temptation uh, uh, of uh, weakening our morality in order to feel safer in community. Um, 
It is he who promotes the evil. Again, the irony is that you, pursuing Christ and purity and human flourishing and relationships, pursuing righteousness by the culture, will at some point, inevitably, again, not if, but when, you will indeed be labeled an evildoer. Um, and the irony is you're pursuing righteousness. And it's going to take courage to stay the path. Because, once again, you must be convinced upon the word of God that it is he who promotes wrongdoing who is an evildoer. No matter what the rhetoric is, right? And often, um, uh, culture can quickly get the rhetorical high ground and make you feel that you're immediately, whatever the pejorative description is of your biblical stance, right? It's not enough to pick at what you're actual saying, it's it, we'd rather we live in labeling. And from a place of feeling a label imposed, you feel insecure in the need to somehow change course. It's going to take courage. Thus, Peter begins to say, I urge you to continue to keep your behavior honorable. It is not a Christian who is fallibly yet seriously following Christ, who is an evildoer. I think this calls for humility in our ethics as well. It's kind of like the old adage, I may be wrong, but I'm not lying. If you think of that in, in, in kind of the ethics of it all, um, are, are, Christian, uh, are Christians who live out the urgency of Peter's comment to abstain from the passions of the flesh and, and to... Um, remain pure in their public interactions and in their online life? Are they going to make all of the perfect decisions in the friends they have, the friends they don't have, and the choices they make in media and the choices they don't? Will you live infallibly? Because again, why not? You're a Christian. No, 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 you're not. You won't. But, but because you're flawed and still have sin principle and lack all absolute wisdom, as we all do, that doesn't then make you an evildoer. Again, it's, it's going to be that sense of humility in ethics, in relationships. Um, some of that gets lost in the language of judgmentalism. You're judging me. You know, um, uh, no, 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 I'm not judging. Well, if you don't agree, you judge. No, no, no there, there's more choices here than that. Again, insincerity and in humility. It is a Christian who is fallibly yet honestly seeking to honor Christ in their life. That Peter urges, not infallibility, but in sincerity, informed sincerity and integrity. That doesn't make you an evildoer. Indeed, it makes you evidence of one who belongs to Christ. This inversion of saying what is good is bad and bad is good as he warns against. This inversion is warned against in Isaiah. Um, you can jot it down if you wish to kind of look over the text, but Isaiah 5.20 and following. And I, it's probably somewhat on Peter's mind. I, of course, I don't know that Peter, in writing this section on ethics, is thinking of Isaiah. But if we look at um, Peter's letter and then we do kind of cross-reference cross work from what he does say and where he does quote and that which he points toward, we find a lot of Isaiah there. So let me just say this to you in the terms of this deadly inversion that Peter warns us against. Don't call good bad and bad good. Don't do that. that that's not the way of the Christian ethic. This inversion is warned against in Isaiah 5.20. He says, quote, Woe, 
It's a word of judgment, and you know this in the prophets. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. And we read about that, if you were noticing, in our psalm this morning, Psalm 74. How the Christian is trying to establish that ability to peer through what what is appearing in front of him and see the reality behind it. Understanding prosperity and poor and needy, uh, those who malign Christ and his path and those who hate his houses of worship, and how the Christian navigates through that in his life as he longs for Christ to return and set things aright. What is the path for the believer in that? Peter says, as you navigate these extremely difficult waters, I'm urging you, Abstain from flesh and keep your behavior honorable. Woe to those, Isaiah says, who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. At the root of the inversion, where we say, you know, uh, I'm, this, what is actually good is evil. You're an evildoer because that's not good. And, and then I'm going to promote this evil behavior in culture and say that there is good. This inversion, the the root of this inversion, Isaiah goes on to say, if you continue through chapter 5, is due to the rejection of God's law. When we look at culture today, uh, and you could look at it in any other time period before our moment in time. Again, it's good to, to speak to culture, to speak to our moment, to remember we're not altogether unique in our moments. Um, The pilgrim's journey has been the pilgrim's journey and will continue to be the pilgrim's journey until Christ returns. But as we consider our moment in our culture, what is at root with man calling right, wrong, good, evil, evil, good? Isaiah says the root is a rejection of the law of God. And then he goes down through chapter 5 in the woe there and he says, but God will not be forgotten, neither will he allow his word to forever become discarded. Rather, as Peter reminds us also here in this text, and this is where we concluded, was um, there will be a day of visitation. And that day of visitation will also be unto the pilgrim a day of vindication, that indeed his faith terminated rightly upon the Savior. Now, as I mentioned uh, here, we're moving then into 13 because he continues the same sense of exhortation about your public behavior. Uh, so, so you can't be pious in privacy. And, and then when you go out into the public sphere, you begin to act as a Gentile. Peter's warning against this sense of duplicity, and he's urging you as a believing community. When you go among the Gentiles, as you live in society, be honorable, be Christian-minded in your interactions. Now, what is the first interaction that he addresses It is a pressing matter of our time, no doubt, and the issue is verse 13. If you're going to keep your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, he moves then into a Gentile or a worldly institution that God has ordained. Verse 13, how do I do it? By being subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. And then, and then he elaborates, is your mind is kind of reeling. You're thinking subjection to human institutions. And you contextualize it the first century and the difficulty they're going through. This period is probably, and we don't know for sure, but it's, it's 
it's somewhere in the transition to Nero prior to state-sponsored persecution. So, so it's not, uh, you know, uh, all, all perfect and peaceful, but it's not as gnarly as it's about to get. But Peter's exhortation stands for be subject to every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil, to praise those who do good. No, notice, as we consider the call for subjection to those who rule over you, I want you to notice when you're reading this and you're contextualizing it here in the, in, in the role of, and you're thinking about masks and you're thinking about restaurants and you're thinking about you, you, various things working through the legislature now. We covered an issue on government for a couple of weeks a while back, and you can find it online if you wish to refresh. I can't go through all those details there of Romans 13, 12 and 13 and handling the sphere of government control. But there's a particular issue here I do want you to zero in on in the text that may continue to build on what we studied before and really illuminate our sense of subjection uh, uh, to government and human institutions that's here in verse 13. Notice very carefully, be subject. Now, if you say be subject and then it moves forward uh, to the object, right, uh, uh, to the object of that subjection, every human institution. So just read the text this way. Be subject to every human institution, whether it be the emperor supreme or the governor sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Notice the grounds of the argument. Right, so the way that I read it for you, be subject, your next question is why? So, so, so you just, out of curiosity, not antagonism, be subject to every human institution, the emperor, whether it's him or all the guys he sends out to rule over you, be subject to them. And you're asking as a Christian, why? And he gives you the grounds to stand upon as to why. Like, like what will fuel my ability to do this in the face of hardship? And vulgarity? What, what, what will violations? What will give me the ability to do what you just asked me to do and to live my life in an honorable way? And the grounds is for the Lord's sake. I, I, want, I want us to think on this as we work toward our conclusion of the text, which is another 55 minutes away, but we're working there. But it's grounded upon the relationship to Christ, right? So I want you to be subject. Remember the day of visitation. And as you live your life keeping it honorable among the Gentiles, keeping a day of visitation in mind, in your pilgrim's journey, on the pathway, be subject, okay? Be subject to every human institution. Why? For the Lord's sake. Again, it's particularly not just your relationship to Christ that is the grounds of your obedience to every human institution. It's more than that. I hope to convince you. Yes, in the, in the one sense, uh, we're, we're paying attention to the words that Peter is carefully choosing. So the grounds for my ability to obey you, person, is that I belong to Christ. That, that, that so far, so good. That for the Lord's sake. Now, that's where I want you to key in. And for the Lord's sake. Why did, why did Peter choose to accent the sense of his lordship? Again, particularly your belief that Christ is Lord. Is the grounds for your obedience to the civil Lord. I hope to convince you. The argument goes this way. Since 
our Lord, that is the true Lord, right? The Lord of the text, be subject to this institution for the Lord's sake. Since our Lord, the true Lord, established government. So, so think of that he established the government. And we covered that all the way back in Genesis. So we're looking at the ordained uh, 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 spheres of, of organized institution and leadership for human flourishing that God has ordained. We're looking at family. We're looking at church. And we're looking at state. And I look at each of these through the glasses of Christ. And my relation to him. And my fidelity to these institutions is grounded upon my fidelity to him. And so the choices I make in these spheres are grounded upon my faith in him and what he would have me to do in these spheres. So let me continue the argument. Since our Lord, the true Lord, established government for the flourishing of mankind, it is my duty as one who belongs to him to obey my governors for his name's sake. Let me read that one more time in case you want to jot it down or meditate on it and, and, and think through how Peter's calling you to or urging you to keeping your behavior honorable. Since our Lord, the true Lord, that's the grounds. Established government for the flourishing of mankind. It is my duty as one who belongs to him to obey my governors. How? For what purpose? For his name's sake. That, 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 that's how. So, so distinctly now, you're thinking of your obedience in the sphere of government as one that is distinctly Christian. That's not easy to put a, 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 a pin on. Um, and, and we'll have various arguments about that. And that's fine. That's, that's good. That's healthy. That's fine. That, yes, not a, not a problem. Because we're in a realm of honoring the governors over us as distinctly Christians. So then we would have to get off into the, uh, how is this Christian behavior? How does this model Christ? How is, and, and there's lots of applications there. And, and that's where there's a measure of, uh, of leniency and liberty but what we all do is we come under to say, this institution does reign over me. I'm under it. I'm under it. It's over me. I'm under it. And under it, I don't just despise it, but I acknowledge it. But I don't just acknowledge it because they're rich, they're elite, they're cool, they're better, they're worse. I, no, I acknowledge it because it is ordained by the Lord. So the underlords are manifestations of the Lord's reign. So I honor their reign as I honor his reign. So I behave distinctly in a Christian manner as one who belongs to Christ. Why? Why must my obedience be grounded upon Christ's lordship? And I want to give you two reasons. Two reasons why. I, I hope these are helpful to you. Because, again, be subject. You know you have to do that now. So the issue for you as a believer, for me, is to figure out how. Because, because as believers, we come to the authority of the text, and the text says, Peter exhorts us as an apostle in the faith. He says to us, guys, I'm urging you, be subject. And you're like, roger that. Now the issue is, what does subjection look like, and how can I get my heart and mind there? 
How do we do this? Again, by having it grounded through the lordship of Christ. Why must my obedience be grounded upon Christ's lordship? For two reasons. Number one, because all authority and power begins with him. Why must my obedience be grounded upon his lordship specifically? Why, why, do I, why am I subject for the Lord's sake? Because all authority and power begins with him. This is how I interpret the underlords. I'm looking, as I'm looking at them, the managers of society, God's deacons, I look at them, and over them, I see him who stands. So I interpret them in light of he who empowers them. You see, when you confess, I, I, I want you to lay this to conscience, if, if you disagree or we're wrangling a bit over the thoughts. When you confess that Christ is Lord, which is the Christian confession of the New Testament, Christ is Lord, right? And we rally around that. When you confess that Christ is Lord, you're confessing that he, Jesus Christ, has power and authority over all realms. That's what you're, 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 you're confessing that. I'm confessing that. We gather on Lord's Day because we confess that. He possesses the authority, not over a few people, over all people, not a few institutions, over all institutions. And for you to confess that he has all power and authority over you individually means that you then submit to him. He has authority over all realms. He has authority over me. I live within these realms. Then what is my relation to him? Submission, right? He has the power. I have confessed it. My relation to it is one of submission under it. This submission of the Christian who says Christ is Lord, this submission includes the power structures that he has ordained, which here Peter says is the emperor uh, who reigns supreme and all of the governors that he sends out. You see, if Christ reigns over all realms and institutions, and I am a member subset of those institutions, then I must submit to the rulers because I submit to Christ who has ordained their, their ruling. Conversely, let me move forward. Conversely, if you confess that Christ is Lord, Jesus is Lord, but you do not actually submit to his power and authority, even expressed through his institutions, you are contradicting yourself. And your confession is in jeopardy, if not altogether meaningless. So there's the tension. Christians need to understand Peter from the standpoint of saying, be subject. And then grasping the weight of your subjection is for the Lord's sake. But for his sake, I will pursue his glory. Who should I be subject to? Every human institution. Well, what do you mean by that? I mean it. Every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme or to the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Again, I must obey those who rule over me in society as a Christian because 
I am a Christian. Secondly, the second piece, I said two, for two reasons. Why must my obedience be grounded upon Christ's lordship? Number one, because all authority and power begins with him. Number two, because all men are sinfully flawed. All men are sinfully flawed. Now, this is probably where we, uh, we, we can, uh, you know, lock hands and, and dance and sing and agree without, without question. Is that as we look to our governors, even the best governors are morally flawed. Think about it. Even a believing governor, and I don't mean governor as in state governor. I mean governor of society, someone in management leadership that belongs to the government, that God, we believe that God has ordained government. And, and then there's a bunch of governors who are at different levels and different jobs within that government. And then they legislate. And then we live within that realm of authority. Even the best of them are morally flawed. I think many of us probably feel like I'm being too generous, too kind. So let me describe further. Many policymakers are overtly selfish, idolatrous, and greedy, without care or concern for those over whom they exert tremendous influence, if not total control. I always, I have a self-reflexive trigger when I hear people say they're going into public service it just, for me, it's head splitting. I, 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 more on that later. The point is, all men are sinfully flawed. So how do I, how do I, how do I navigate this as a Christian? If I am to obey them, as Adam Thomas, so so I, I would profess to be a believer. And so I'll, 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 I'll be in this role, and then I would say that you should conceive of yourself in the same sense. If I am to obey, Adam Thomas is a Christian person. If I am to obey my governors in any meaningful sense at all, then I must interpret their authority as being established by Christ. Thus, my loyalty and obedience is not to a man or a party, but to Christ. And I would include in that, under his providential care, my loyalty is to Christ. A means of that loyalty is learning his Bible. We come to a passage like this to wrestle over it so that we can then interpret it rightly and grow in our faith as we live our lives before him. So that when I interact with human institutions, I think of them as a Christian distinctly. This is the tension, right, where we're finding ourselves is between life and liberty as a citizen in this commonwealth um, um, and, and, and Christian identity. 
because I'm trying to figure out how I argue from my legislative freedoms or, or from my faith and, or from both and how do they inform each other. That's a gnarly thing to, to unwind and I can't unwind it for you and you for me. Maybe collectively we can come with some ideas. But one thing we need to know and, and we need to apply as we proceed is the simplicity but depth of this text. We have to live as Christians. That's the urgency of the hour. And when I understand that, that even the best of intended lords are flawed lords because they share the flesh I share, and their, and their whim and wave are constantly changing, and it seems arbitrary and selfish, how do I circle back to find a heart of submission? Again, it's going to be a long process and a hard process. But I, the immediate place I must return is recognizing their authority is given them by God. It's an institution of which he's ordained. And I know that that's hard to understand because we have so many different forms of government around the world. And so it's like, would this sermon work in, a, in this setup with this kind of government? Would this setup with this government? Would that be the same word you would apply to that government? I, 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 can't, I can't account for... For, for all that goes on around the world, I, I, where I am at and the providence I have and the way that I can conceive of this text in the place where we are. And, and I would say at least yes, I would say the same thing no matter where, no matter how difficult, and I wouldn't want it any more difficult, and I don't wish it to be more difficult on anyone else, but it would be the same that at least at minimum we must be Christian. Again, my loyalty cannot then be to a single man or a party, but to Christ and his providence over me. Why is understanding for the Lord's sake so important? And this is one brief answer I hope to help you with when you think about it. Why is it so important to understand my submission as a Christian is for the Lord's sake? Because it helps me fight constant political cynicism. It helps me fight constant political cynicism. I told Adrienne that I, I don't ever set um, uh, uh, New Year's resolutions. I just, I'm not a re resolved kind of guy. So I, 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 can't, I don't set them. Um, uh, so this year, I think it was maybe the very first time I ever verbalized that I would actually have a resolution. And I, it's kind of tongue in cheek because I'm still not that resolved. But I told her I have to fight a spirit of cynicism. Uh, I, I, have, I have to fight that. Uh, like, I know what you're doing, you know what you're doing, and I know what you're doing, and I know that you're doing it. You know, if nobody else does, I do. I'm watching you. Th th this constant cycle of it. Um, and it creates a a ugly cynicism. When I circle back and I recognize that this individual or this legislative body is a derived authority, it's by Christ's authority, I can find a way it's not easy, but I can find a way to submit. Because I recognize my providence is here. And this, these are the lords he's given me. And the only thing I can do is submit in some measure that's honest and true as relates to my relationship to Christ, who is my Lord. If the object of my obedience is the lordship and glory of Christ, then I am free. I'm free from living or dying over the many victories and defeats that come with modern campaigns and legislative battles. Notice the text, it's what he speaks of, verse 16. I'll go through 15. For this is the will of God, 
right? So that, that, that's the Lord's sake. That by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live, then, as people who are free. Not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but again, living how in society with lords who are over me? How, how do I live? How do I perform my life as a Christian, as a servant of God? Again, I'm to use my freedom that Christ has set me free to be able to navigate my governors. That in my response and in my voting, there is but one Lord to whom I owe absolute obedience. And that is Christ. And as a Christian that's manifest, that I belong to him, when I can find ways to obey those he's placed over me, both for good and for bad. Verse 17 is the conclusion. You notice the address here at the end. It's kind of like this crescendo, but then he continues the relationships on into verse 18. But here he kind of concludes this little section by addressing the four major relationship structures that a Christian experiences. Um, th this is, again, uh, keeping with an honorable life as a Christian for the Lord's sake. Uh, he concludes these realms by verse 17. Honor everyone. Love the church. Fear God. Honor the emperor. You see, in conclusion of the text there, for the glory of Christ, whether it's social, ecclesial, spiritual, or political, Christians must give each sphere its proper due. All men are to be respected. I, I know, again, sometimes that counts and sometimes it doesn't. Whatever. Rhetorically, it, it, it's a wash. It, it doesn't matter. As a Christian, it matters. Honor everyone. All men are to be respected. The church of Jesus Christ to which you belong is to be loved. Think of that as a believer in conclusion of our time this morning. What does that mean for you? when he tells you, love the church. How is that measurable for you? All men are to be respected. The church is to be loved. God is to be feared. The emperor is to be honored. Let us pray. Father, we uh, love your holy Bible. We love that you have written it and given it to us as a lamp and as a light to our path. Our, our path is always tricky, no matter where we find ourselves in life, um, to be honest and fair-handed, to be obedient and honorable is uh, to us a difficult task given our flesh, the devil, and the world that sets about us. Help us with this task to honor everyone, um, to love your church to fear you in remembrance of Christ, that he is our savior, and to honor our governors. Help us with this task as our faith terminates, not in them, but in you. In Jesus Christ's name we ask, amen.